Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hello, and welcome to Third Act. On today's episode, I talk with Jack Henneman, the American historian. Jack is a former corporate lawyer and life sciences CFO who always loved history. He grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, reading the stacks of French history books laying around his house as his dad taught medieval French history at the University of Iowa. His schooling and corporate law career taught him to be a good writer, and he dabbled in writing throughout his corporate career, publishing a very well-read blog for many years. But it took a pandemic-inspired road trip to realize that he wanted to return to his love of history. Today, he is reading and writing what he calls The American History, using his podcast, The History of the Americans, to tell the story. So, Jack, welcome to Third Act. Well, thank you, Liz, for having me. It's a great pleasure. I haven't even thought that this might be a third act, so this is wonderful to explore it this way. Well, you're a fellow podcaster, so I always love to have fellow podcasters on, another member of the craft, so to speak. But I just wanted to mention that I don't script my show, so hopefully we can go a bit off script if you're okay with that. Sure thing. Sure thing. All right. So I am going to mix up my normal format for this show because normally I start with sort of the first act. But your third act to me is so interesting. And I think it really sets the stage for what you did in, in Acts 1 and 2. So you're, you told me that you're sort of third act and you might, this might be your fifth act or whatever, but what you're doing now is to read American history from the beginning. So what does that mean? And where, like, where does one start with that? Well, that's a outstanding question. So somebody uh, much smarter than me, and I wish I could say who right now, said that, you know, history always begins in the middle of something. So it's possible to tell American history from 1776. It's possible to tell American history from 1607 when Jamestown was founded. It's possible to talk about American history from the Middle Ages because threads in Europe and elsewhere in the world drove exploration. I sort of decided all of this belatedly when I had the idea, I began by reading books on Jamestown and and the Mayflower. This was all before I figured out actually how to podcast. And then it, it hit me that I was starting in the wrong middle, if you will. So I, I decided I decided to start with 1491, and then um, I did a, a long series on Columbus. Did you Was it based on the book 1491 or based on your own reading? Both. The book 1491 was kind of the backbone of it. But what I usually do is I find a book on, on the topic that I'm interested in, and then I use the notes from the book— to work my way back into other sources that sometimes are easy for me to access. And I sort of find little nuggets that are interesting to listeners or at least interesting to me. So this, you wanting to read and write the American history, you told me it came to you during a pandemic road trip. And I was describing this to my husband, who's a friend of yours. And I, and I said, you know, when I'm on a road trip, I'm thinking about things like, 
where I'm going to get the best shake on the road or like new sandals or something like that. I mean, I mean, how did you think about this? I live in Austin, Texas, and most of my family, including my beloved mother, are on the East Coast. And so in late September, I, uh, I took a COVID test, negative, got in my car, bubbled up, and drove over three weeks. I drove four and a half thousand miles to visit various wow. people. And during that time, I, I love listening to podcasts when I drive alone, especially. And a friend recommended uh, David Crowther's History of England podcast, which started 10 years ago and has still only gotten to about 1,600. He's moving even slower than I am, I guess. Uh-huh, but it's okay. a, it, it, it was really good. And as I was doing it, I thought, you know, hey, this would be a great project. And so I started looking around and seeing what else there were was. And, and there are some people trying things a little bit akin to this, but not the way I defined it and all the rest of it. So it was an evolving process that I sort of cooked up in my mind on this road trip. And then I, I really didn't launch my first episode until January. Why a podcast versus writing a book or teaching a course? You know, I, I had always had an ambition to read American history in a really kind of detailed and structured way, you know. But I had a day job and a family and all the rest of it. And so I would read history, but I've never felt like I had the complete architecture of it. So that was always sort of a project I wanted to do. And then I thought, hey, I could do this project. And having a podcast would sort of force me through it. It would it would make it an external commitment that would bind me a little bit to uh, doing what I wanted to do. So it, in a way, it, it's synergistic. You know, writing a book is a solitary exercise. There's so many spectacular history books written. I'm not a professional historian. I'm at best a, a popularizer. So, you know, the podcast seemed like a way to do it with some advantage, some edge that maybe others wouldn't have if I could do it well or reasonably well or just fine. Yeah, well, it is good. History of the Americans. So you've always loved history and, and why? Well, I suppose I come by it naturally. My father was professor of history at the University of Iowa and elsewhere, but during my formative years, the University of Iowa and Iowa City. Okay, fellow Hawkeye. A fellow Hawkeye, absolutely. And um, so, you know, our our family, our house was sort of, we had 2,000 history books lining the shelves, which I know because I had to help get rid of them when when he passed in 1998. And so I grew up in this environment. Now, his specialty was the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages. But he loved history per se, history. He he was a big believer in popular history. A lot of academic historians don't much approve of popular history, but he had helped Barbara Tuckman on one of her books. And What do you mean by popular history? What does that mean? Well, Historians are professionals. They have a standard of practice that, you know, is defined by commitment to primary sources. They're professionals. They're like anyone else. And popularizers are not professionals by and large. There are some academic historians who write books for a popular audience, but guys like 
uh, Neil Ferguson or H.W. Brands at the University of Texas. David McCullough. David McCullough. Well, David McCullough is not a professional historian. You know, he's, he's coming at it the other way. But uh, he's an example of a popularizer. Okay. And your dad believed in that style as well? My dad believed that anything that got more people interested in history was great. Um, Barbara Tuckman's book, A Distant Mirror, relied heavily on a group of sources called the Chroniclers, who wrote long contemporaneous histories for the benefit of kings and so forth. And the Chroniclers at the time were, you know, professional medievalists, you know, have a lot of issues with the accuracy, if you will, in the Chroniclers. But they they brought together the late 14th century in France for Barbara Tuckman in a way that was extremely useful. And she was a phenomenal writer. A Distant Mirror is a great book. You know, so there was some argument among academic medievalists about whether a distant mirror was any good. And my dad thought it was great because it got a lot of people interested in the Middle Ages. That's the sort of psychological point I'm making. Got it. So, I mean, I love Iowa City. You obviously probably learned to love Iowa City as well. It's a beautiful place. But you escaped. You went to Lawrenceville Academy and then to Princeton. And why did you end up going to New Jersey for high school? Well, that's a fraught question, I suppose. I... (laughs) Okay. <laughs> so my my parents were New Yorkers. They'd both gone to prep school. And I think my parents were open-minded that the schools in Iowa City would be fine. And I, they're good schools, but I wasn't challenged. And so um, my parents felt that I really needed to be pressed. When I went to Lawrenceville back in 1977, yeah, we had classes six days a week. My very first class was AP American History. There were eight or nine of us around a table, and the teacher who taught it uh, was just knew everything as far as I could tell at you know, that age. And I realized the game had totally changed. Uh, so I was a long way at home, and there was no real way to call your parents except on the cell phone, or except on the pay phone. Yeah, and down the hall, um, right? Down the stand hall. In line, but, um, stand in line, yep. It, it was great. Uh, it was a great education. John told me that you said uh, Lawrence, Lawrenceville was harder than Princeton. Lawrenceville was harder for me than Princeton because I entered Lawrenceville never having really been pushed academically. And Lawrenceville was really demanding. And uh, so I worked, I worked harder those two years at Lawrenceville than I, I, did, I did at Princeton, or at least most of the time. And uh, I worked harder at Princeton than I did at law school. So most people, it gets worse as things go along, but... I found school to get easier. So uh, you ended up going to uh, the University of Michigan to law school, which I won't hold against you as a as a Ohio State Buckeye. And then you started at Latham and Watkins in Chicago, a big law firm. And you ended up working in New York City. Uh, What ended up bringing you sort of New Jersey, Chicago, but back out to the New York area? I actually worked just outside New York in Rockland County. Basically, what happened was uh, I thought Latham and Watkins was great training. I learned a huge amount. But the, the structure of large law firm practice pushes one to become a specialist. And um, you really do very much the same thing over and over in most big law firm practices. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that we don't need to go into. 
But I concluded that I was temperamentally a generalist. So I started looking around for other things to do. And I ended up taking a job at a, uh, a startup company in, in medical technology that I really had stumbled across through college friends of mine very uh, serendipitously. And it changed the arc of my career. And I was, after that, doing healthcare technology of one sort or another my whole career. I think you told me when we were prepping that you ended up going to work for, and I don't know if this is the same company that was run by Orthodox Jews. Can you say anything more about that? Um, yeah. So I was I was the Gentile general counsel of a company uh, run under Jewish religious law. How did you get that job? I mean, it, as a Gentile, did you know anything about Jewish religious law? No, but I was a, I was a good corporate lawyer and that's, okay. what, the, that's what they needed. And I had met the CEO again, sort of spontaneously. It's too long a story for this, but uh, I had met him spontaneously and we'd really hit it off. And I would say that it was in some ways an extremely satisfying place for to be an in-house lawyer because, you know, Jewish religious training is very, it, it promotes the kind of thinking lawyers do. And I found that when I would articulate the principle behind, you know, why we needed to do something or not do something, it was very quickly understood at a, you know, by even rank and file employees, like, well, under what circumstances do you put the patent number on a product label? And you could sort of explain the concept and then you get a lot of very smart questions back and off they'd go. So I really thought that the the training that many of them had in their religion made it delightful to be uh, the general counsel of such a company. And how long did you end up working there? And then what did you go on to do? I was there about four years. And in 19, I got there at the beginning of 1994. In the summer of 97, the board decided uh, that the CEO ought to change. And I became interim CEO while they searched for a permanent one. And that was about six months. And in, in late 1997, uh, we hired a permanent guy. And at the same time, literally three, four days after the permanent guy came in and I was to help with the transition, I learned uh, that my father had what was almost certainly terminal cancer. So I sort of helped with the transition, and then I took a few months, essentially leave. Technically, I was still employed, but it was essentially, you know, family leave. And my parents at that time had moved to Princeton, uh, which was about an hour's drive away. And so I would go down there and visit them. And then I consulted for a good friend of mine who was the CEO of Integra Life Sciences, which is in Princeton. And so I, um, I'd go visit my mom, and then I'd go over and help him with stuff. And the next thing you know, I ended up working for Integra, where I stayed for 16 years. Wow. As the uh, CFO and other. Uh... I, I came in as chief administrative officer and I had, I'll say, all the paper pushing functions except finance. So, you know, law, HR, regulatory, business development, IT, a whole bunch of things like that. And then um, in 2007, I uh, became the chief financial officer. 
Okay. So somewhere along the way, you have, given where you're at today and talking about the reading and the writing of American history, you had to be, I know you started writing and you wrote a blog under a pseudonym. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've always liked writing. I, um, you know, I wrote for the school newspaper in Lawrenceville. Uh, in college, I wrote for a publication that started when I was there. It's called the Nassau Weekly. And, uh, and then I became a lawyer. And of course, you have a lot of professional writing then. It sort of went by the wayside for quite a while. But when blogging came in, uh, really at about uh, the beginning of this century, I had a number of friends of mine who'd read my tendentious emails on one topic <laughs> or another suggested <laughs> probably probably so that I would stop sending them the tendentious emails. They suggested tendentious. I take a blog. Okay, we might have to uh, we might have to translate and, that term for all of our listeners. Keep uh, going. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, so um, I, I did that, and uh, I, I started in December of 2003, and, uh, you know, it was pretty early on, and it was sort uh -huh. of, you know, it, I, I developed a, a, a pretty nice following, and I remain friends with a fair number of people who are both either, you know, well-known or, or have pseudonyms in the world that came out of that. So, you know, they've given me some encouragement and support on this project. What, I mean, what did you learn from doing that, that you're applying to this podcast? I can write fast. You know, I, when I was blogging, I probably wrote, I think I one point figured out it was between one and a half and two million words over oh about 10 gosh. years. That's amazing. I think I'll eventually do some interviews for the History of the Americans podcast. But right now, 18 episodes along, I write between 3,800 and 5,000 words of script for each episode. So, you know, I've probably written 80,000 words since I started writing in, in November. And, um, you know, that's 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 a... That's, a sh that's not a long book, but it's not a short book either. So love brings you to Austin. So you move away from New Jersey and to another job change. And then you eventually retire. So what did you, what was sort of the last thing you did and what, what got you there? How did you end up maybe a little bit more on how you got to Austin? I met my wife 11 years ago. At a at a conference in Phoenix, and we were in the same industry at the time, and uh, we were uh, both separated about eighteen months before, as we learned over lunch, and uh, we um, were, I think, quite well. I'll speak for myself, I was taken with her from the beginning, and she was okay. at least tolerant of that, and uh, <laughs> so we started we started dating long distance, and uh, and then. We each, you know, it was sort of a modern family thing. So when we each had a free weekend and weren't having to spend time with our own kids, delightful as they all were and are, we would go off and have a date weekend somewhere. And this went on for a while. And then and then we sort of, I would say it, it evolved into me flying out to Austin fairly often when I could 
and then eventually, uh, eventually commuting back. Back to New Jersey? Back to New Jersey, and that, which was tiring, you know. And so all four, all four of our kids are now in Austin, and it's all, they're all in their oh, 20s. that's terrific. They're, they're doing great. Yeah, so I, I started commuting back, and eventually that got tiring. And I had a conversation with Integra about a transition, and they were uh, very supportive of me. And that took another year. It's hard to leave as CFO of a public company. So that took another year. And just as I was sort of thinking I might be done at that point, I got a call to be CFO of a biotech company, which was headquartered in Ames, Iowa. The, the headhunter, the, the executive search guy, was very apologetic and he sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm afraid the company's headquartered in Iowa. And I sort of said, you haven't dug too deeply into my past, <laughs> have you? <laughs> Happy to fly back Happy to, to Iowa back. from time right. to time. But they wanted to set up an Austin office and so uh, and get a new CFO. And so I did that. So it was, that was uh, hardcore biotech uh, drug development. And I did that for four years. A couple of clinical trials failed. And uh, next thing you know, I decided, you know, I'm going to do something else. And um, I spent most of the first 15 months or so that I was, quote unquote, retired, apart from sitting on boards and trying to line up various gigs to do in biotech and medtech, I partnered up with a local VC and we mentor first-time CEOs in medical technology and biotechnology. So I've got about eight or 10 guys who uh, and women who... We mentor and all the rest. Some of them even pay us. Others give us stock in their company and that kind of thing. So it's fun to do that. So if, if I mean, we have people who listen to this who are aspiring med tech folks, so they can find that in your LinkedIn. But what's the name of your company that does that? SparkMed Advisors. SparkMed Advisors, in case you need help. So, all right. So you're so you're doing that. And then we're kind of now caught back up to the beginning of your trip uh, during the pandemic. Is the history of America, is it is it incomplete in your sense? Well, I'm tempted to say I certainly hope so. But uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean um, in, of uh, course, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying going forward, but from what we read today and what people are, I guess, taught or what they're able to learn. So there's a there's a bunch of levels. So obviously there are many historians who are engaged in sometimes very creative and important scholarship about various points in American history. So the first, the first point is it remains a very fertile ground for academic work. I'd say it's, there's been a real change, and I talk about this a little bit in an introductory episode, which is about 10 minutes to the podcast. That's episode zero. Everybody should listen Ep- to it because it's terrific. You know, one of the things that's that's happened really in the last 30 years or so, and I'm generalizing so that everyone will find a, a basis for, for quibbling, but generally speaking, the emphasis in American history has, has in, in the academic world, moved away from telling a national story per se, and the academic focus has moved toward cultural studies. It's moved toward scholarship around oppressed peoples, all of which is, of course, important and fine to do. But that has meant that we've very much fallen away from trying to 
think about and teach American history as a national story that binds us together. Every country needs a history, however realistically it's taught. Uh, and I'm not arguing for a triumphalist history, but everyone needs a history that they can be proud of. If they don't have that, they don't have a country. And that doesn't mean you ignore bad things. It means that you discuss them resolutely in the context in which they occur. For my part, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. I'm not trying to do anything other than make American history fun and interesting. And my main rule is that I resolutely avoid or try to resolutely avoid judging people in the past by the morality of the present. I think it is so much more educational if we say what they did in the context in which they did it. And I think allow listeners in the case of a podcast, readers in the case of a book, to develop their own moral sense of that. And when you try to turn the teaching of history into a morality play, or when you try to turn it into a device for shaping today's politics, whether it's triumphalism, you know, as maybe very patriotic people would want, or whether it's deeply critical and very negative history, these are all aimed at modern political objectives. And I think that that actually is playing a role in the massive decline in the interest in history in our universities. The number of people majoring in history has fallen by 75% since you and I were in college, and it's continuing to fall. Do you attribute that also somewhat to STEM, 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 you know, just it's hard to figure out how you're going to get a history degree and make money, right? Unless you go to law school. Well, I, I, I think there's many explanations under the sun. And okay. one, of the, one of the things I very much object to in my podcast are people who look for a single explanation for any historical development. And that probably is equally true of, you know, the decline in the interest in learning history in colleges. I'm sure there's many reasons. Exactly. Interesting. Uh, so what are you hearing from your listeners? Uh, well, one one is that I'm terrible at pronouncing Spanish names. <laughs> um, okay. Those are hard. That will be temporary. There'll be less and less of that required as the, as the podcast moves along. I think, um, you know, everybody has their preferences. I think there are people who find that I'm a little too lectury and didactic. I think they would prefer to have a chatty and interesting interview or perhaps a different approach. So I get some criticisms along those lines. But uh, I also I get a lot of positive feedback around interesting stuff that I insert and the humor, at least, that I, um, I try to evoke around historical events, which, of course, we could all take super, super seriously. But on the other hand, 
I'm prepared to laugh about an entire expedition of Spaniards dying 500 years ago. I mean, when you can see it coming and you know it's going to happen, uh, that to me is something where we ought to be able to make a little bit of a joke and have people laugh about it. If you take all death every time, however many centuries ago it occurred, is deeply serious. You probably don't like. You probably don't like what I uh, have to offer. Yeah. You you had said you've got people whose kids are listening to it, which must be really rewarding. I've gotten uh, several notes from uh, people who are saying how, you know, they uh, listen to it when they drive their kids to school and stuff like that. And it's a clean podcast. There's no, there's no, I think the worst word I've used uh, is like caca or something. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, there's, there's no, there's no bad words. And uh, and so uh, it's we're a family podcast. <laughs> Great. So, what do you think your dad would think of the podcast? That's a good question. I my mom thinks my dad would think it was really cool. I don't know if, in fact, when he listened to it, he would like it or not. You know, but you know, we're all haunted is probably too negative a term, but we're all. Uh, influenced um, by our parents in ways that we can barely detect. And the fact that I'm doing this is definitely a topic of some humor in my extended family. Mm -hmm. Um, I bet. uh, You know, because, you know, my voice sounds uh, something like his. And I'm sure that I have, you know, some of his, you know, expressions and some of his, you know, tone of voice and all the rest of it, just as many children have of their of their parents. So I think there's an echo there. And but I think he would like the mission. I think he would like like the project. And I think he would really like the idea that, um, you know, as we say, as often as we can, history should be fun and interesting. And, And that's my main thing. Have fun with it, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, it's great. I I think your dad would be very proud. And I wish my dad were still alive because he loved history, loved it. And he was a history major at Iowa. So there you go. And uh, I think he would love listening to the podcast. Okay, so here's where we're going to go off script a little bit. And I'm going to do I'm going to ask you like five or six different questions. They're sort of lightning round and just answer what comes top to mind. Okay, ready? Sure. Favorite fiction book? Favorite fiction book? Uh, the Fountainhead. Oh, you're killing me. I love that book too. Favorite history book? Favorite history book? Oh, that's a tough one because I've read so many. Rather than doing that, if I could be lame, I will tell you that <laughs> a book I just, I, I will tell you that a book I just finished, which was spectacular. It's yeah. called The Secret, The Secret Voyage of Sir Francis Drake. 1577 to 1580. All right, we'll put it in the show notes. And and Drake uh, was an English explorer who tortured the Spanish, stole from them at every chance he got. Uh, but Queen Elizabeth sent him on a secret mission to find the western end of a northwest passage that in principle would go over North America and give the English a fast route to Asia. Drake uh, discovered the West Coast, if you will, always in air quotes, of course, because there were Indians there. But he discovered the West Coast for England 
And uh, the story of the secret mission, which was long buried as a state secret, is fascinating. Okay. All right. If you could be a person in history, who would it be and why? Oh, boy. I couldn't live up to any of the people I would want to be. As, as, as an American, all right, I'll throw one out. I think the coolest guy in American history, like the person who I would most like to think I could be, even though there's not a chance, is Benjamin Franklin. So he would be my pick. He had an enormous amount of fun in life. He was extremely good at what he did. He was the key point of transition between England and the English and the new American sensibility. And he was, by virtue of his scientific accomplishments, he was by far the most famous American before the American Revolution. So in the colonial days, the most famous American globally was Benjamin Franklin. Any educated person in Europe knew who he was because of his scientific accomplishments. So when you look back at Americans, what they contributed, whether they were a good guy and whether they had fun in life, he certainly, he certainly meets all the criteria. If you could make one change in the teaching of broad U.S. history in the United States, say high school, what would it be? I would say that the teaching of history in our public schools, um, my feeling, and I'm not an expert on this topic, but my feeling is that it has become terrifically politicized, really depending upon whether a state and the people setting these requirements in the state are, shall we say, red or blue. And I, I think that the idea that history should be used to indoctrinate one way or the other, is terribly misguided. And it's probably yet another reason why, uh, by the time they get to college, so many people aren't interested in learning more. It needs to be exciting. Last question. Aside from the history of the Americans and Third Act with Liz Tinkham, what's your favorite podcast? Oh, and the one about English history. What's your favorite podcast? I would say that my favorite podcast is Sam Harris, Making Sense. Well, Jack, thank you so much for your time and uh, insights on history. We will put all the information about your podcast in the show notes and uh, look forward to listening more. And I'm not a big history buff, so I've been listening to it and learning, and it's just fascinating. So thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for saying so, and I very much appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.